After the Time Out podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches talking basketball on the court, off the court, and anything in between. On today's episode of the After the Time Out podcast, we sit down with Coach Tyler Costin, Director of Basketball Development for PGC. Prior to PGC, Coach Costin was founder of the Hoop Star Basketball Club and was a coach at the high school and collegiate level. We talked to Coach Costin about his early coaching career, his work helping other coaches develop, and his lock left defense. Enjoy the show. Well, Coach, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, we're we're very happy to have you. Uh, we've been looking forward to this one all week. I we when we were making questions, I said to 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 Todd, like I I couldn't cut the questions short. We were so excited to have you. So thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm excited. I'll, I'll do my best to keep my answers short because I could talk about one of these uh, questions for about an hour. So I'm going to do my best to be succinct and dig into me. If I ever like don't give you a real specific answer, feel free to like follow up. That's kind of my my downfall. Sometimes I stay a little too philosophical. So I, I invite you both to uh, really dig into the practical on me. You got it. So first, we, we just like to start off with everybody and, and just getting to know, to know you. So you know, tell us a little bit about your unique coaching journey. You know, you started out as yeah. a point guard, your career kind of ended, you went into the high school game, the collegiate game, you founded your own club, and you know, now you're with PGC basketball. So kind of take us through your journey a little bit. Yeah, I like the generous way you said that my career kind of ended. Basically, um, every pro team said, you're not good enough to play for us. And so uh, that's, how, that's how my <laughs> career ended. That's how most careers end. Um, I actually, uh, yeah, interestingly enough, I, uh, I, I was studying law and was actually studying for my LSAT when uh, I just got the offer to come on as a college assistant um, for a small Christian college and didn't know that I would love coaching, um, but fell in love with it on that first season and went on that journey, um, coaching women's college, uh, going to be a grad assistant for a men's team at the D1 level, um, coaching college for five years. Um, and then at the same time, uh, I realized I personally didn't want to be a college coach. I thought I did. I thought I wanted to, uh, coach in the, in the final four. Um, but after five years at that level, I realized that as an assistant college coach, especially, and I'm sure you guys and many of the listeners know this, you only spend about 10% of your time coaching basketball as a college assistant. I'm like, that's not, that's not the life I want. Um, and at the same time started a family and, you know, to really climb that college coaching ladder, I mean, you've got to be willing to move anywhere, take any job, be recruiting all the time, um, and just realize that that wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. I loved coaching basketball, um, but that wasn't the sacrifices I wanted to make. So at that time, I, uh, I started my own club and uh, joined uh, PGC at the same time and really found that uh, it was amazing how quickly uh, we could make an impact at PGC in a five-day summer camp. Um, and then I got the, the long-term development, uh, starting my club and, and bringing athletes up from sixth grade all the way through, you know, sending them off to college. So um, I've, uh, I've really been able to coach at every level as well as working with pros and consulting for pro teams and so uh and coaching fourth grade uh basketball players uh so it's been it's been a very unique one um as i have kind of had 
an opportunity to coach at every level. So um, you obviously mentioned PGC. So could you tell us kind yeah. of about your role at PGC and then yeah, how helping absolutely. working with them and uh, you know helping other coaches kind of helped you develop as a coach yourself? Absolutely. So at PGC, I get to train all of our camp directors and develop all of our camp curriculum. Um, so it's a wonderful responsibility and a wonderful challenge as well uh, to keep adapting and really to be on the cutting edge of the game. Because every year um, we need we bring in the youth, the, the next generation, and we want to prepare them for the game that they will be playing as they enter into their high school and college career. So well, how that's helped me is not coaching a team for the last 13 years. Um, I've been freed up to just travel the world and learn um, during the season. So while you guys are doing the good and hard work of coaching a team and dealing with parents and uh, talking about playing time, I don't have to do any of that. I just get to travel around and learn from guys like you. Um, visiting college practices. I got to go spend some time with uh, FC Barca over in Barcelona and learn about their player development system, which is unbelievable. Or, you know, just going and watching really good high school coaches or watching games, picking brains, being on podcasts. So I get to dedicate myself to learning, whereas someone with a team really has to dedicate themselves to winning and serving their team. Um, and so I'm really thankful for the role at PGC where I just get to be a learner. Um, and I get to consolidate all these good ideas um, into a package. So uh, I think that's really, really allowed me to, to think accelerate my growth um, because I can spend my time on that as opposed to just, you know, um, the good work of, of coaching a single team. I really like that. The consolidating of ideas. I, I thought that was such an interesting concept. So now Todd and mm -hmm. I have, have listened to many a podcast about you talk about <laughs> lock left and, you know, we've done our, our research on it ourselves. So let's dig yep. in. So, let's you know, do it. You invented the idea of the lock left defense you know, kind of take us through how you came up with the concept. And then in the beginning, sure. were there any bumps along the road? Oh, man, absolutely. So I want to make sure. So the idea of the lock left con the concept, I did not invent. I just created the defense. Here's how I came up with it. When I was playing in college, um, we played against a powerhouse, uh, Carleton University. And like I, I found out, like, I was like, gosh, I'm, I'm handling the ball with my left hand a lot. I hate it. Um, and they beat us soundly in the, in the national tournament. And ever since that moment, I was like, why don't teams do this? Like we forced middle, a bunch of teams forced sideline baseline. Right. But I rarely in my entire playing or coaching career came up against a team that actually forced everything weak. Um, and so that was, that was what got my mind turning. So then, you know, I went and implemented parts of it and experimented with the college teams I worked with. And then I really put it in. Um, with my basketball club, we had fourth grade teams through high school teams. And over the past 13 years, have developed this lock left system. 90% um, of players are right-handed. Um, most of these right-handed players are going to be more aggressive drivers, better finishers, have better vision, pass better at the right hand. So how can we just make players a little bit worse? How can we, you know, play with the margins? And so instead of forcing middle or baseline, we just force left. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think about the lock left as just like a, an on-ball defensive approach um, where it's not. And, and what I've created uh, is a 10-layer system that makes it a team-wide approach where it's not just about putting ball handlers left, but about keeping the ball on one side of the floor, not allowing ball reversals, shrinking the space so that we can load up and get more defenders in a smaller space. 
um, because it's a lot easier to guard a smaller space and completely rearranging our whole approach to defense as opposed to not letting them score. Our whole goal in the lock left uh, system is we want to shorten possessions and have players make more decisions that they don't make normally in a smaller space, thinking that they'll make worse ones. Um, so that's how, how I came up with it was actually I had to play against it um, at one one point. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, an, an, the whole concept is applicable, I think, to any sort of a formation that a coach feels comfortable with. Like if you're a matchup zone coach and you re feel really good about teaching matchup zone, you can apply all 10 layers to your matchup. You can apply it to a one, three, one, full court, half court. Um, all the all the layers just work through what do you do with the ball? What do you do one pass away, two passes away? How do we guard different situations, ball screens, handoffs, post ups, et cetera? Um, and just making sure that we're prepared for it because all those things are going to happen regardless of what sort of formation you're in. So that's kind of the, the brief overview that you may have heard before, but your listeners may not have. Okay, so you kind of talked about a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know the lock left is working when what things are happening. Are you looking at shot types? Are you looking at yeah. analytics, right? Like mm -hmm. th things like that. How, how do you really get a good evaluation of, okay, we're doing this, but you also have to have some affirmation of it that it's really working. Absolutely, absolutely. So one, one uh, let, me, let, me, let me answer it um, broadly and then give an example. Um, you will know that the lock left is working when three things are happening. Um, first, you aren't allowing right-hand drives and right-hand finishes. Um, and that's something that you can stat. Um, second thing, You'll know that the lock left is working when you aren't allowing uncontested off the catch threes. That's one of the, the basic layers of the lock left is we, we chase them off the line and then out of the paint. Um, the third thing you'll know is that your opponent is not running an offense. Um, you know, one, one thing that teams practice a lot is their offensive execution. I'm sure your teams practice that a lot as well. Most teams do because it helps you win games. Um, and most teams initiate their offense, whatever they're running, with a pass to the right wing. Just most of them do. And so off the jump, the entire defense is focused on just make the opponent initiate their offense with a pass to the left wing. And all of a sudden, they have less reps, less practice time. That player on the left wing tends to be a little bit less effective than the player on the right wing. And we've improved our defensive efficiency. And so I call that the thing they want most. The thing your opponent wants most is to execute their offense, whatever they're running. And the lock left is meant to disrupt an offense, to get them to have to make decisions and play faster and not get to execute the thing that they're really good at. So the lock left works best against very systematic and regimented teams. Um, the lock left, left is less effective against a team that doesn't really do anything offensively. They can just, just play like a free flow attacking uh, system with a lot of multi-skilled players. Fortunately, that's the minority of uh, most high school teams in the country <laughs> that, that just play free flowing and they have a lot of multi-skilled players. So you'll know it's working there. And then analytically, um, we want to force a lot of shots off the dribble um, outside of five feet. So we, we would love to force a lot of floaters and mid-rangers. We want to protect the rim, but we don't come out um, or ever bring help outside of the rim area. And that's another tenet of the lock left. We don't want to help. We don't want to rotate. Yeah, we'll, we'll get strong at the midline. We'll stack it up at the rim, uh, but we will not bring help outside the paint um, because that then allows passes, rotations, closeouts, and, and tough stuff. We want to drive people down into either trying to do something contested at the rim or pull up for that floater or mid-range. 
because um, especially at um, lower levels of play, not the professional level, that's a very inefficient shot for most players. You just talked about this a little bit, uh, like how, how, when you see this really working, how does mm-hmm. it really affect an offensive player? Say it's a really, really good player. Good, good yeah. guy. And you're, you're really grooving yeah. in the lock left. What are some of yeah. the things you're seeing against that guy? Yeah. Massive frustration. Um, so I've got a high school team, uh, coach David Klein out in Michigan. that has been running the lock left for three years now. And like, he's, they've gotten to a point where at halftime, like teams don't even want to come out and play the second half uh, defensively. They're yelling at each other. They're drooping. They're pointing fingers. You know, players are being given left-handed drives and they don't want to take it. <laughs> like, it, you know, it just really messes with their mind um, because on ball, we're not squaring up, but then they see a huge line of two, three players just sit, sitting for them at the midline or at the rim. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is it really speeds them up. Um, on every single catch, the, the only acceptable response or the response that we're trying to force defensively is an immediate dribble with their left hand. We don't want them to, to sit and window shop. As Tony Bennett says, they cannot window shop. They're not allowed to look to shoot. They have no chance to dribble right. It's just an immediate dribble to their left hand, um, which results in um, a, a lot of quick decisions. And as we know, as coaches, under pressure, quick decisions often result in bad decisions. So um, you'll see lots of turnovers which is why um, I teach defense first, because I think as we all know, transition offense is going to be more efficient than any sort of offense against a set defense that we run. So let's just get five more of those per game um, by trying to get out and transition and force more turnovers off of bad decisions, bad shots. So you see chaos, you see speed, and you see frustration. All right, so now we're going to go individual position skill-wise, right? Okay. In the defense, is there – is there a certain skill for, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, one guy maybe pressures a little bit more. Uh, do you need yeah. a guy like that? Do you need, or, or are we just going right. the basic concepts and teaching everyone those concepts? Yeah. So first three layers, um, as I teach it now, is you got you to chase the ball. You got to space the pass and you got to erase the rim. Those are our first three layers. So it's chase, space, erase. Those are also three defensive roles. And there are the three defensive roles in order of importance. And so as my preferred way to teach the lock left, and when I go install it for teams, this is where I start, is I start with player evaluation and then role identification, which is where I think coaches should start offensively and defensively, right? Which, which yeah, we can talk about that for another five hours. Um, so, so a chaser is a role. And in a matchup, that chaser, their job is pick up the primary ball handler three-quarter court and chase the ball, not stop the ball, right? Not turn the ball, but to chase the ball left. And so like, that's literally a position in the full court. We're not in between the ball and the rim. You know, we might be on the side, but we're more on like rear hip. And we're trying to chase that ball downhill to the left to get them to play fast. Um, and that's, that's a, a matchup position. So we got a chaser. All right. Then a spacer is actually two players and our spacers match up on the left and right wing. Their job is to defend in space and their primary job is to try to skirmish and snipe. And skirmish is a term that we use at PGC. You know, a lot of coaches might call it like a cat and mouse or a hedge or a cover or whatever. But their job is never to help on the ball, but rather just to stunt at the ball to try to make the offense wrong and then to try to snipe passing lanes. Um, anyone playing in space as the offensive player is looking at the, the basket, anyone playing space to the right of the ball 
is actually up and beyond the line, open to the ball, not a closed and high hand, high foot deny, but open to the ball, skirmishing, actually playing almost as you would at the top of a one three one zone. Um, that's how big of a deny. We do not want to allow any pass to the right-hand side. We want to encourage backdoor cuts because we're stacked up at the rim. Um, we want to try to steal that pass. But that's how they're playing in space to the right. There's space or right. And I would actually designate who's playing on that side of the floor um, you know, unless we get mixed up in transition defense, but there's space and right. Then we got our space or left and our space or left is discouraging the drive a little bit more and encouraging the pass a little bit more because we want that ball to go up to that left wing. Um, so they're almost more in the gap, but from the gap, while they are in help, they're not going to help if the ball does get driven. Um, because we don't want to allow a kick to the left wing with enough space that they could actually shoot a three. They're in the gap skirmishing, but skirmishing with the intent to steal the pass. If they can't steal the pass, to flow right into chasing them off the line while bodying them out of the paint. So those are spacers. They're playing on the wings. We got our chaser on the ball. We got our spacers, a one pass away, if you will, or space just uh, next to the basketball. Then I put two erasers um, back at the rim, and their whole job is to actually erase shot attempts at the rim to not leave the paint. Think drop coverage. Think uh, think Joel Embiid, Rudy Gobert, um, someone that you would never want guarding on the perimeter, but uh, they're, they're on the floor for their height. I think we all got those players. Um, and so we just keep them where they're, where they're more comfortable and they're just erasing things at the rim. Um, so we got chasers, spacers, erasers. Those are also rebounding roles as well um, for our team rebounding system. Okay. Well, you just led me perfectly right into that question <laughs> because I, I actually, my, my team's struggling a little bit offensive, just on the defensive boards. We're, we're not very yep. big. Um, yep. you know, we're still learning, um, you know, we got to get a little bit stronger too, but I, I was reading your, one of your articles about, uh, how to just improve. I, I happened to come across it, uh, you know, reading angles and things like that. So then when I knew mm -hmm. we were talking to you, I said, well, in this defense, I would think you have a pretty good idea of where the, I guess, yeah. typical rebounding angle would be right. You know, I know a lot of people Absolutely. now are saying a shot from this space is most of the time going to go here you know somebody mm -hmm. like Dennis Rodman has talked about that he would he knew that yeah. wherever they took a shot from there was an angle so can you guys kind of tell us about your rebounding uh I guess principles our concepts where, where they absolutely going? yeah and in the last dance when he was talking about rebounding he went into like crazy artist mode with his hands there and it's like it's yeah. like yeah okay um that's that's very uh, special um so most shot charts so a lot of lock left coaches like send me their opponents shot charts and it's really cool to see like you know you're, that's another answer to your question is like you know you're doing your job when the majority of the shots are coming from the left mid-range um some from the left corner um but it, but just really on the left hand side of the floor which really does allow your team to predict and and really you know, Dennis Rodman was so good at predicting where the ball was coming off because he got so many reps at it and put so much focus on it, right? And as your team plays every day in practice and plays every game this way, and they start to see shots from these similar spots every day, they're just going to have more reps. They're going to have more time seeing shot angles and we'll be better at predicting those shot angles than our opponents who don't see shots from that side of the floor as often like like if you look at a typical shot chart like any one of your team's shot charts you'll see that there's a bias towards shots on the right hand side of the floor um so it's it's just like imposing our will on the opponent to play in this way puts us in situations that we've been in more and we practice all season long 
where they've got to change their game to play against us. Oh, we're playing that lock left team. We've got to change what we're doing A, B, and C. And we're just going to be better at it because we practice it every single day. So I, I wouldn't go um, any deeper into the angles other than your team's going to be better rebounding shots from those angles. But what I will go into is this rebounding system because I've seen significant improvement, percentage improvement, measurable improvement from teams that have put this in. Um, if we defensive rebound in a more traditional way where every player is required to box out their check, then any single breakdown, any single mental or physical error um, gives our opponent a significant advantage of actually securing the basketball, right? If four of us do our job and we're boxing out, right? And one person doesn't, well, that unhindered offensive player is going to swoop in and have a significant advantage to grab that basketball. And so it requires a perfection. It requires, right, a lot of like, everyone doing their job every single time. And what I found when studying a lot of really good rebounding teams is it's less about everyone boxing out their player. And typically, the team that has more players in the area of play and the five feet surrounding the rebound, surrounding the ball, regardless of height, tend to have a higher rebounding percentage. And so in what, what I reject, actually, and this is a little bit controversial, um, I reject boxing out. Um, I actually think that the concept, I'm not talking about the physical act of putting your body on somebody, okay? But I'm talking the concept of everyone boxing out is not efficient rebounding. Um, instead, what I suggest is we need a team rebounding system that puts multiple players around the basketball. And that's actually where I, I use these names of chaser, eraser, and spacer. So let me just run through these roles because they would also be defensive rebounding roles where we just want more players around the ball than our opponent, okay? So a chaser, whoever your chaser is defensively chasing the ball has zero box out responsibilities uh, defensively. They actually never put their body on anyone. That tends to work out well because they tend to be chasing the opponent's point guard and the opponent's point guard rarely is attacking the offensive glass, right? So it tends to work out. But their job is actually to chase the ball. And often, whoever our chaser is, is going to be some sort of a grab-and-go ball handler as well. So we actually want them to get the basketball. So they are should be somebody that has a nose for the ball. They're always around the ball. They're going to chase that ball. They're reading those angles. They're swooping in typically to the right-hand side of the, of the rim to get that long rebound. Your spacers, their job is also not to box out. Their job is just to check and go. And I think we all understand this concept of check and go, but it's really more of a mental concept than like a physical check and go with the forearm or a physical check and go with the hand. It's just check and make sure that whoever you are matched up with isn't actively pursuing the ball. And if they do actively pursue the ball, you give a quick form, but then you're done. Your job is to go and get in the space, hence spacer, get in the space around the basketball. Uh, we want another person to space around the basketball. Now, our erasers are also unique because it's really hard to actually secure a rebound when you're boxing out, uh, when you're leaning on someone and pushing on someone. And a lot of times we give up offensive rebounds because uh, we give up the seal or we give up the physicality and actually go and pursue the basketball. And so an eraser's job is actually to never get the basketball. I think Steven Adams, when he played with Russell Westbrook, right? Steven Adams was an eraser. He was typically erasing or eliminating from the play the opponent's best offensive rebounder, which a lot of times it wasn't an old school back to your opponent box out, but more a bulldoze or buffalo face-to-face, chest-to-chest, so I can keep eyes and, and body on you. And I just keep you out of the play. If we can mathematically subtract the opponent's best offensive rebounding threat, 
while at the same time bringing more players around the ball, we're chasing it, we're spacing it. I think, every, well, I, I know every team that's implemented effectively has improved their defensive rebounding rate, um, as well as gotten out in transition faster. As you know, if we can get a ball handler to grab that ball, a chaser or a spacer, as opposed to a big eraser, has to then look for the outlet. We're racing out in transition a little bit faster. So we typically get more players around the ball in this sort of a system. So let's kind of go into some adjustments. So yeah. you know what what happens if if first the point guard is left-handed, but everybody else mm-hmm. on the team is right-handed? Mm-hmm. You know how do you how do you adjust to that? So my answer is going to be a little bit um, uh, simple and annoying. You don't <laughs> you right. don't adjust at all. And and you know of course. Uh, a really, really good ball handler that's left-handed is going to be more effective against the lock left than, than someone that's right-handed. You know, so we're giving up a little bit of a percentage there. Um, but it's actually, thanks, honey. It's actually less about um, the on-ball and more about how can our entire team know where the ball is going to be, be prepared for it, and load up on it. Um, and so we, we got a high school team that faced – a team that started four left-handed guards in the playoffs. They uh, had a really effective season run the lock left. And then their first game of their playoffs was last, uh, last season. Um, they had four left-handed guards and uh, coach, coach DK said, we're switching it. We're going to rock, right. We're not going to lock left. We're going to rock, right. And they were getting smashed at halftime because they hadn't played that way all, all season long. Like their players were having trouble adjusting their stance, like all this stuff. And so at halftime, they switched back and went back to the lock left against four left-handed point guards. Um, I can't remember if they came back and lost in overtime or won in overtime, but but they made a significant comeback even against that skill. And, and he said, because I've been telling him, don't make adjustments. He's like, shut up, Tyler. I'm making adjustments. Um, and that was just kind of a little anecdotal thing. You, you don't make any changes. You get good at what you are good at because it's not just about making them go left. It's about the speed at which you're making them play. It's about where you're putting your your rotations and your health and, and whatnot as well. So we don't make adjustments. They do. That's the goal of the lock left. So then let's talk about ball screens or on a skip pass. Are you trying to mm-hmm. put all of those actions to the left side of the floor? Baseline, you, top side, doesn't yep. matter. Yeah, we're going to weaken down every, every ball screen regardless of where it is on the floor. Now, if our chaser's doing their job, 70% or so of the opponent's offensive possessions are actually going to start and stay on the left-hand side of the floor. So therefore the majority of our ball screen actions that we're defending should be on the left-hand side of the floor unless we can't do our job. Um, that's why, you know, that's, that's a role that is integral. You probably need three of those players because um, it's also tiring. But if we don't have someone that can chase and keep the ball left initially, then we're going to be guarding a lot of actions on the right-hand side of the floor, which make it, as you guys know, as good coaches, a lot tougher um, because you're going to weak that thing to the middle of the floor and you just have more passing options. Um, skip passes. Skip passes will only happen from the left-hand side of the floor to the right-hand side of the floor if our on-ball defender fails. Um, the on defender on every single catch is to chase off and out chase them off the three-point line immediately on the catch, and then body them out of the paint. That's it. Um, if they can stand there and window shop or periscope, then we're going to get some skip passes. Um, you know, but uh, just like the great Tony Bennett says, like it, a lot of it just comes down to ball pressure. Every defense works with good ball pressure, and a lot of defenses have trouble without it. The other, other thing that I, I think helps uh, guard against skip passes is our on-ball defenders on the catch are actually sitting on the right shoulder and the right ear of the offensive player. And so if they have the ball on the left-hand side, a normal skip pass, you have your defender between you and the rim. 
And so you've got a passing lane to the right corner or the right wing. But with our on-ball stance, we're actually directly on the skip pass. And because we're on the right shoulder, it forces like a left-handed skip pass, uh, which tends to be a little bit softer and less accurate, um, which allows us to recover even if they do play it, uh, if they do make it. So, yeah, skip passes can hurt. And so we got to guard against them. Okay, so what is, I guess, what is the best adjustment you've ever seen against it? You know, there's a lot of smart coaches. Somebody gets, yep. in, the, gets in the lab and, and really yep. looks into it. You know, what yep. is the best adjustment you've ever seen to the lock left? Overload the right side, um, have, play with no post, and put your strongest one-on-one player on the left wing, give it to him and let him go. So just you iso know, ball, so, just kind of iso, iso yeah. ball. Yeah, and, and so many coaches are reluctant to do that, right? Like, like you're like, ah, oh, we hated the hardened rockets. It's so ugly, even if it's effective, you know? So, like, most coaches, like, are so in love with their offense, it's their baby, that they will not let it go and say, I'm scrapping my offense, and I want you to play one-on-one on the left wing. And you either finish it or kick out and put them into drive and kick basketball. That's the most effective counter. So, uh, you know, I'm a primarily a zone coach, you know, so kind of mm-hmm. take me, are there any major adjustments in like my matchup two, three that I would make to kind of run the system? Cause obviously we, we do, we, we pressure man to man up the floor and we push to the left side, but is there any other major adjustments for somebody like that does primarily zone? Yeah. Here would be the major adjustment teaching it man first um is is just how i found helps like because the 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 major adjustment is actually for the players not for the coach once the players have the habits of this is how we close out different than we've ever closed out before we don't cut off a left-handed drive we don't stop it (laughs) like it takes a good month for players and it's painful at the beginning for players actually change everything they've been taught i don't help on drives Right. It's like that really takes a lot of time for the players. Um, and I've just found that um, teaching it in small sided man games um, helps player habits. But once the players have the habits of here's how we guard the ball, here's how we close out, here's we play in space, here's how we erase at the midline, all that stuff. Then as a coach, you can get super creative. Like, I don't think there are any adjustments. You can just mix up different formations. Um, but our, our, our individual habits are consistent. I actually love it in a zone. Um, I really do. I love it in a zone. I just, I found it tough to teach players their individual skills in a zone um, or change their habits in a zone. But then once they have the habits, I love it in a zone. All right. So uh, you talked about, you know, transitioning to the offense, obviously based on the positions mm-hmm. of rebounding. Um, mm-hmm. What does it look like in transition defense? Okay. And then let's, Tell us about some things you're obviously def- defensive minded. You thought about this, but tell us about some of the things you like offensively. Okay. Now you got me excited because, because of the lock left, I've been like seen as this defensive minded coach. But if you ever watched me play, you wouldn't believe I was defensive minded. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me answer it this way. So um, I actually have, it's going to come out this year of an offensive system called race and space. Um, and defensively our goal is to make the offense play in less space because it's harder and offensively the whole goal of race and space is ways to create more space because it's easier uh it it's a it's a lot quicker to put an offensive player into an advantageous situation than to grow their skills 
and make it and help them create advantageous situations, right? That's what we're trying to do as coaches. Um, Cause you can do player development, but it takes you years. Um, whereas like we need to score now. So let's see if we can create with some space for you, right? Uh, and so that's what race and space is all about. It's about how can we play fast, but create a ton of space um, in transition, primary, secondary, all of this stuff. It's all about creating massive space. Um, and that's what I would do offensively. And I'm excited to bring out these 10 layers, which I think are real practical ways um, that we can get our teams to play more in transition, advantage transition, not just fast. Um, and then how can we create more space? But that's a whole other podcast. And uh, when it comes out, I'll have to uh, jump back in with you guys. Absolutely. All right. So, um, or after the timeout question, right? We like to ask coaches, uh, uh, you know, like strategy timeouts. So you're, you're working with a coach like on their timeout development, right? You see some teams in the timeout, it's just kids don't pick it up, not organized. Um, and they ask you to help them. What are some of the things you would tell them to make their timeouts more efficient and develop their, their timeout system? That is such a great question. I love the name of your guys' podcast. Here's three things um, that I would suggest a coach examine in their timeouts. Um, first, pick one thing, like one of the most common issues I see with coaches is they they go in and they say four or five different things um, and then each player heard one of those four or five different things and so they all go out doing something that you said but they're not on the same page it's like limit yourself limit yourself limit yourself um, the second one would be stay away from emotional uh, timeouts like a lot of times we'll be so frustrated about something that we did um, you know we we're picking up our dribble in the corner or whatever it is. And so we spend, you know, the whole time, time out, just like passionately, like talking about that thing, but that's not the thing that's going to help us win the game the most, right? That's just something that's pissing us off. Right. And so I'd say like, try to get unemotional and think about like, all right, what is the thing that is going to help us win this game? What's the adjustment? Not just the one that's pissing me off. Right. Or maybe we're pissed off about the referees. And so we spend the whole time out talking about like, you can't be focused on the referees. You know, it's like, we're not coach. That's you. You know, so I think just like stay away from the emotion um, of the timeout. And then the third thing um, that I would encourage coaches to do on timeouts is to actually, and not do this all the time, but to experiment with some player-led um, timeouts. You know, and so like starting with what are you guys seeing out there? Or, and oftentimes they won't know, right? Or they'll say, or they'll like have to be way off. But just by starting that with just a player-led timeout, like, or someone that's a smart player on your team, like Dante, Dante, what are you seeing out there? Um, it completely changes the tone of the timeout. And then when it's time for us to talk as a coach, the players are more engaged and they'll lean in. Um, cause they're like, Oh, I, if he had asked me, I wouldn't have had anything. What is it? Right. So it just, it's just a way to kind of like till the soil a little bit to plant the seed. So it actually becomes effective. So those are my three suggestions for, uh, for timeouts. So just to finish up, we always like to do a fun top five with everybody. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I noticed on your bio on PGC in college, you shot 40% from the free throw line. So kind of give us, what are your top five? Well, I hope I, I, I wasn't a great free throw shooter, but I did get over 78% from the free throw. 40% from the point line, I did get over 40. I did get over 40. But 40% from three is phenomenal. <laughs> so what are your top five keys to be a great three-point shooter? Make shots in your mind first. So, so many players spend time visualizing and repeating their mistakes and misses. But before you ever step on court, make five shots in your mind before you ever step on court. 
um, it's going to be amazing what that does for your for your shooting. Uh, the next thing would be get the ball moving first. A lot of uh, a lot of shooters say it starts with your feet, and I don't disagree with that. But for effective range shooting, the ball needs to move further and faster than your legs on the extension. And so speed up the ball. Um, a lot of players, when they miss, they slow down the ball. Uh, third thing, fight for your eyes. So get a small and specific target every single time. That eliminates distractions, um, defensive distractions, mental distractions. Fight for your eyes. Get a small and specific target. Uh, third one, index alignment. Try to get your index finger down the center line of the basketball and wrap your index finger around the rim on your follow through. And the last one is this. Um, I really, really believe in being relaxed. Smile when you shoot. Um, if you can be relaxed and smile when you shoot instead of like give effort to make it, you're probably going to make a couple more shots. Well, coach, we appreciate your time. We're very excited when you get the offense stuff out. Yeah. Let's have you back on. So thanks awesome. for Thank joining us today. Thanks for having me guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast and Apple Podcasts by searching after the timeout. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and everything in between.